and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and our guest this week is one of the more prominent baseball analytics writers around. It's Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Mike has previously written for ESPN and Fangraphs, among other places. He's also the host of MLB's Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and he's an analyst on ESPN's StatCast broadcast, the very good analytically-minded baseball telecast that ESPN puts out a few times a year. In our conversation, Mike and I will talk about the flashpoint of this year's World Series when the Rays pulled Blake Snell in the sixth inning of Game 6, along with the reaction to that and how it turned into the usual old-school, new-school debate. We'll talk about how he decides what to write about, his process for diving into the data, what to do when there is very little data to use, his recent articles on Cody Bellinger's fielding prowess and the different arm angles of the Rays' pitching staff, how to communicate complex ideas in writing, what else is on the StatCast horizon, preparing for the StatCast broadcasts, the differences in communicating data on TV compared to writing, his career path to being a baseball writer, advice for aspiring baseball writers, and his favorite game that he's attended in person. Then True Media's Joe Wagoner will join me to react and wrap things up. One note that Mike and I recorded this about a month ago, right after the World Series. The podcast got delayed for technical reasons, and now we're getting it out as the Hot Stove League starts to heat up this month. So without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with MLB.com's Mike Petriello. We're joined now on Expected Value by Mike Petriello, MLB.com writer and analyst and host of the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike, let's jump right in. Biggest on-field flashpoint of this World Series. It just finished up. Game six, Razor up in the sixth. Uh, Kevin Cash pulls starting pitcher Blake Snow for Nick Anderson after five and a third inning, 73 pitches. Let's just start with the decision itself. Kind of what did you think of making that pitching change at that time? Well, I feel like since I'm, you know, the analytically inclined guy, I'm expected to defend it. And I felt right. like that was kind of a, a big straw man argument that came up that said, oh, all the nerds thought was this was a good idea. And meanwhile, like, I thought it was aggressive. Like, I wouldn't have done that. I want to, mm-hmm. however else I explain this here, I want to make clear, I would not have pulled him then. And I thought it was kind of funny that like 99% of these stats nerds I follow on Twitter were all kind of like, no, what are you, what are you doing right now? Don't do this. I was shocked by it. And I think Kevin Cash is going to wear that for the rest of his entire life. But to me, I found it a lot more defensible to pull Snell when he did than it was to bring in Nick Anderson. I think that was the problem, right? right? You could you could argue to pull Snell right there because his velocity was noticeably down. It was a couple of ticks down, which is a big deal. I like him at 98. I don't know if I like him at 94. Hmm. But Nick Anderson had looked so bad all October. And this is a guy who I think has been the best reliever in baseball for the last two years. That, that was the part that killed me. And I know that this gets no whole big thing about you know, your eye, the eye test or your gut and the nerds and all that garbage. But um, I, I think we're focusing on the wrong mistake that he made. So what did you think about that? How it kind of turned into a referendum on old school, new school baseball and all that? What did you think of kind of the fallout from it? Well, I think it was sort of predictable. The people who were going <laughs> to complain, complained. <laughs> and the people, yeah. you know, I don't even think it, it makes sense as an argument, because like I said, all the stats nerds were like, that was not the right call. No one's out there saying, oh, yeah, Cash did absolutely the right thing. Like, it's almost it's almost being invented as a war by the traditionalists because no one's saying Cash did the right thing. Now, my controversial opinion would have been, yes, I leave Snell in there, but not for that much longer. I might take him out two batters later or the next inning. I'm not leaving him in to throw a complete game. That's That was never, ever going to happen. Um, but 
Yeah, that, what really got me, uh, I saw some prominent players talking about this, and some of them were referencing like, oh, you know, you know, Pedro Martinez didn't get lifted, whatever. And I'm like, do you remember one of the most famous <laughs> moments in recent baseball history where Pedro Martinez got left in too long yeah. and potentially cost the Red Sox the World Series and almost certainly cost their manager his job? Like, does anybody remember that? You know, right. has, has anybody remembered five years ago when Matt Harvey got left in in the ninth inning? Like, you know, through our from Kansas, you probably remember that very well, yep, Paul. Very well. I'm, I'm not saying what Cash did was right, but it's like we've totally forgotten, you know, sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. And we can't just pretend it's always the way we want them to be. Yeah, the, the Matt Harvey example is exactly what kind of jumped to my mind. It's the flip side of this because he was dealing, as they say, through eight innings until he wasn't. And suddenly things changed and, and you know, it cost him the World Series or that game, at least. Any ideas on how we get past this? I mean, it seems like every time there's a situation like this, it's the same sort of discussion. Any ideas on what we can do other than just let time kind of take its course and, and shift perspectives? Well, if I've learned anything about Twitter in America, it's that we're going to be <laughs> more divided, not less divided. <laughs> and people are always going to have their opinions. Um, I don't I don't think there's a good answer to that other than just try to like intelligently explain the thought process. And I do think it would be different if all the nerds were like, no, that was the right decision. Because then they, you know, that's that's like putting up a tougher front. And like I said, nobody was saying it's the right decision, but you can at least explain, okay, well, he does get worse the third time through. His velocity was down. That, that's the thing that killed me the most is people are like, yeah. it's the eye test. And I'm like, okay, well, your eye test seems to just be looking at the box score and seeing zeros, right? To mm -hmm. me, an eye test is Hey, his velocity is down. You know, his 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 movement isn't quite the same. That's that's an eye test to me right there. Any other uh, big picture takeaways you kind of have either from this World Series or this weird short season that you just kind of see at a high level as we kind of move forward from a, a numbers analytics perspective? I was not a fan of the postseason uh, being expanded. Like it's 2020, mm -hmm. so you know you kind of wave away anything silly that happens sure. this year. But I was, I, and I, I hope it does not stay the same going forward at least in the sense of there was not enough of an advantage for the top seeds. Right. And I was, I was really concerned that you'd have the Dodgers or, you know, the Rays, you know, through the best teams get bounced out in a best of three, like that would be the worst case scenario. And you end up with like the seventh best team and playing the sixth best team. And that didn't happen. I was, I, we had talked so much about randomness mm -hmm. in these short series. And the fact that we got both top seeds getting through to the end was a, a shockingly pleasant outcome for me. Yeah, it would have been a lot different if we've had the whatever Astros and Brewers or something. Right. <laughs> gotten, gotten really weird, although it probably would have been appropriate, as you said, for this year. Let's move into kind of the process and, and tools is for your writing. So uh, as you write for MLB.com and usually from a data-driven perspective, when you're doing an article or pitching an article, thinking about it, do you more often have an idea and then dive into the data or do you kind of fish around the data looking for ideas? What's your general process when you're coming up with something to write about? A little bit of both. Um, right now, what I'm working on, like right this second is, so we're working ahead to, to free agency. All right. And we could start, um, I'm thinking about DJ LeMayu, you know, and you can certainly write about, he's been a good player and he's got a high batting average and blah, 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 all that stuff. What I'm writing about is just try to find something interesting. That's, that's different from like the normal view. So what I'm writing about now for him is he has not been shifted in a legitimate sense other than like weird stuff like a position player pitching or whatever in over mm -hmm. four years, you know? And we keep talking about shifts and I think that's interesting. So like I'm, I'm focusing on that. And that was just something um, I had picked up on during the season. Like I think I was doing research for a, a Yankee broadcast we did and I noticed that and I sort of tucked that away. So sometimes it's that, sometimes it's uh, an editor like saying, hey, I 
can you find something interesting on this guy? And I will. A lot of times it is just looking at a leaderboard and seeing like nine expected names. And wow, what's that guy doing at number six? That's interesting to me. So there's not really one answer to that. For the PCI during the World Series about Cody Bellinger basically being good at defense and making hard catches look easy. Uh, How did that article come about? Or what was the process of that? Because I think that was a really good way of kind of using these stat cast numbers to explain something that, you know, you'll hear an announcer say a lot, Hey, he made that play look easy. It wasn't that easy. And you had the numbers to kind of back that up. Talk me through the process of that one. That one, I have to give uh, full and complete credit to my uh, editor and boss and podcast co-host Matt Myers. Cause mm-hmm. you know, during the game, we obviously we've all got like a big slack room uh, just kind of talking about the game. And we saw that nice play. And I, I think it was noted that it came up as a, uh, a 45% catch probability, you know, even though he didn't have to dive for it. And I've had this, this little bit of uh, sequel quote handy, which I did not write. This is Chris's credit to uh, Jason Bernard, who's on our team, who I generally bother for things. I don't know how to code up all the time. And then I save okay. them and try to reuse them. I hear you. Anyway, that. Matt uh, said, Hey, um, I know you've had this thing before where you can go look up uh, similar plays, right? So not only the same catch probability, but visually the same, because I can kind of code it to be same distance, same direction, same time, because that's, I think, a pretty effective way to show it. And mm-hmm. so he's like, go check out and see if there are any of those good examples. And so I did. Uh, and not only did I find like three or four pretty easily, one of them actually happened to be AJ Pollock, who, you know, might have been right. in center field like the day before Bellinger didn't play or the game before. And then he got, uh, you know, uh, the third string center fielder was Chris Taylor and he kicked the ball around and started the whole <laughs> insanity. So anyway, um, that was Matt's idea. And once I was able to take up those plays and, and show him to me, he's like, oh, this is great. If, if the Dodgers win, which, you know, was questionable until the end, uh, that would be something good to write up. So uh, knowing how jinxes are real and do exist, I refused to open my document until the final pitch was thrown. Yep. And then I, I wrote that up. So, you know, sometimes it's me noticing something and saying, hey, I should write this. But sometimes a lot of times it's also, you know, Matt, or one of the other editors saying like, Hey, this, this would be a good story for us to have. Can you make this happen? Another piece you wrote during the series, which was interesting. And then we saw them talking about on the broadcast was about the different arm angles for the Rays pitchers, particularly the bullpen, how just come at you righty lefty. And then, you know, every angle from basically sidearm to over the top. Uh, I guess first, what did you take away from writing that piece? What did you learn? That was funny. So that, that one is one I, I kind of came up with and I asked, um, you know, I did the graphics and stuff for the article, except we had this video overlay um, that actually right. Al- Alex Fast, who, who works with us and is known for for picture list and everything, he helped me with that. And Alex and I got a big kick out of that because as soon as we made that, all of a sudden, all the broadcasters started making these exact same things and making this like 12 arm cursed alarm clock from hell. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, you need to get one of those. Yeah, pretty clear where all that came from. So Alex and I laughed about that. What I, what I was surprised about is, you know, at this point in baseball history and baseball stats writing, it's super rare to find something that has not been extensively written about, right? Because usually I'll come up with something and I'll write about it and I can reference some piece that, I don't know, was on baseball prospectus in 2012 or whatever, right? This, I could not, I could not find anything interesting about whether this matters like in an effective sense. And I, I asked people, you know, researchers and, and people who work for teams, I'm like, have you ever seen anything written about this? Like, does this matter? And I was shocked to find that everybody said no. And that was a little disappointing because like, you'd like to say, hey, this matters a lot. But mm-hmm. I'm, you know, 
partially I was on a time crunch. I didn't have time to do like a whole full research project. And partially I'm not qualified to do some of that stuff. Like there are people way smarter than me who, who can do that. So I kind of had to like be honest about it and say, this is really interesting. And visually it's super cool. You can see why this matters. And here's a quote from uh, Kevin Cash saying he thinks it matters. Can I actually say that it's going to gain them like, you know, two tenths of a run, whatever? No, but it's something interesting to watch out for in the World Series. Yeah, it was something I think we hear announcers say a lot, maybe just like one pitcher to another. Uh, but yeah, not a lot of research. What do you what do you do? How do you attack that when you know there's no, uh, you know, you're not going to find numbers for difference in arm angle from previous pitcher or whatever. What, what do you how do you go about thinking about it that way? You just sort of present it and you be honest that, you know, you can't you don't make a declaration like here's why they're winning. Right. But you we were able to at least quantify that it was uh no team had as many different angles in that sense. I think we looked at release points within six inches of one of their teammates. So we're at least able to say like, they do this more often than anybody else. Uh, you know, it, let's not make it a one-to-one relationship with success. Cause obviously it's success is based on a lot more things than that, but I, I'm hopeful that somebody um, noticed that and wants to make that like a winner research project. That would be kind of cool. What else is important to you when just in general, when you're trying to communicate these complex metrics, you know, you're often tasked with explaining whether it's out out above average or something like that, uh, new MLB.com or Savant metrics. What, what it's important to you when you're trying to communicate these things in writing. You know, it's funny is, um, so my, my son is five and he's learning math right now and he's pretty good mm-hmm. at it, you know, like simple multiplication or whatever. And my, my wife watches me like teach him some of these things and she's like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing, you're pretty good at this. You should be like a math teacher. And I'm like, well, it's basically my job to take like math concepts and explain yeah. them to people who don't care about math. You know, the first thing is make it interesting, right? If it's an algebra lesson, no one's going to care, you know, and you right. got to be able to like, explain it quickly. I'm fortunate that I have a reasonably long background in non-baseball work right like i i didn't get my first full-time baseball job till i was 34 so i worked uh, like digital pr for a long time and and Mm. video startup whatever so anyway i'm i've got experience in photoshop and a little bit of design and stuff so if you can make pretty pictures and not just like numbers i always try to make sure my articles are not a big block of like 1200 words you know there's got to be at least Mm -hmm. some kind of image or something that at least if people are scanning, they'll hit that and that'll help them. So, you know, make it interesting, make it easy to understand, say it in the way that a human being would say it and not necessarily a physics professor would say it. And I think, you know, some of it's necessarily complicated. um, But if you can also, you know, show a leaderboard and say, hey, this team that you think is good, here's one of the things they're good at. That always helps. One of your new toys on StatCast front this year, I think you wrote about is pose tracking, basically the, you know, arms and legs, stick figures for players. Uh, I think it was your StatCast broadcast where you, you show the different motions of Johnny Cueto. How else do you see pose tracking being used? Obviously, it's a brand new thing and we're not sure where it's going, but what, what are some ideas you have about pose tracking moving forward? Yeah. So for the first five years of StatCast from 2015 to 2019, it was powered by the hardware as a combination of radar for the ball and cameras for the players. And they were fueled by two different companies and you know, it's kind of complicated to get all that to work in sequence. Yeah. And it was it worked pretty well, but, you know, it tracked like 89% of batted balls. You know, it was weak on pop-ups and it was weak on, on grounders sitting to the, you know, straight to the ground. Yep. And it just kind of viewed players as blobs, essentially like center of mass. So that was fine. If you needed to know he ran 28 feet, like that was great. It worked pretty great. And then for this season, they ripped out all the hardware uh, out of all the stadiums and they replaced it with one by Hawkeye, who I think most people know if you've seen those fancy tennis replays where they show the ball like, you know, an inch away from the line or whatever, that's, that's yep. what does that. 
and that has worked out uh, pretty well. I, I, I was a little apprehensive about it because, you know, they kind of rushed to do it over the winter. And then there was the whole Buffalo situation. And I can tell you, like the day before opening day, I was like, uh, I hope this works. <laughs> and, and it turned out it did like a huge credit to all the people on teams. Like I have nothing to do with this. If I'm a end user, really, um, yeah. and it worked. So huge credit to all those people. But what it did first was attract a whole lot more. It tracked almost 100% of added balls, which was super nice. And it turns these blobs into, you know, you sort of, like you said, the stick figures, and that's really just a version one. Like there's so much more that can be done with that that look like human beings, you know? So it's always been a little bit of a weakness before. Like did a guy jump over the fence with his arm over the fence? Mm-hmm. Well, I previously couldn't tell you, you know? So this will help with that as you reference the Johnny Cueto shimmy. So now you can get into pitching motions. Like if a guy's velocity is down, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, well, you know, look at his motion. It's not quite the same. He's moving his foot this way or his arm that way or whatever. Teams teams have been using that kind of stuff for years, but yeah, mostly in controlled settings, like in a bullpen, you know, mm-hmm. they, it's been difficult to do in game settings. So this will help with that. And um, it, it's going to be interesting. You know, like you can see how a batter is swinging. Uh, is he, is his exit velocity higher in front of the plate? Or if he lets it get deep, or is that different on different pitch types? You know what I mean? So all that stuff I think is is pretty interesting and uh, opens up a lot of doors. Yeah. What else? Uh, what else might be next on the Statcast horizon? Not trying to like get secrets out of you or anything, but uh, what else do you see that that might be coming? Well, that's the big one, right? It's just like what can mm-hmm. we track now that we could not previously track? So that that's where it starts. Like for example, one of the other weaknesses also of the previous system was it was really good at throws coming towards home because that's where the radar was and pretty weak on throws across left to right. So that's why there are um, catcher arm strength leaderboards for the last couple of years, but there are no infielders because it didn't really do a great job at like third to first. And this one so far, it looks like it's going to do great. So that's that's low hanging fruit, you know, leaderboards and stuff like that. Uh, get to new metrics. Now we're always thinking about like decision based metrics. Like should this guy have gone first to third based on this outfielder's arm strength and this guy's speed? Um, that's all stuff we've been talking about for a while, but this new hardware will hopefully allow us to get to it. Let's move on to some of the TV work that you do. So you do a handful of StatCast broadcasts for ESPN each year uh, with Jason Benetti, Eduardo Perez. What's your prep process like? So, you know, I'm doing this game. What's your prep process like to get ready for doing those games on TV? Obviously very different from writing. What? Do, how do you get ready for those calling the games on TV? Panic, mostly. <laughs> uh, like a 22-page Google Doc. I mean, it's changed a little bit now that I've, I've gained more experience with it but mm-hmm. most mostly it's like you know jason is probably the best play-by-play man in baseball and eduardo um has had an entire lifetime in baseball you know not just broadcasting he was a player yep. and obviously his father's a hall of famer so he grew up in those big red machine clubhouses and so eduardo you know he does his research certainly but he could probably just show up and be interested right because he'll see stuff and so for me i'm my role is to be the guy who knows things then i better know things you know mm-hmm. and a lot of it's just prep working, you know, also with our producer, who's usually Andy Jacobson, who's, who's great and doesn't mind. I send him 2,600 emails with leaderboards and stuff. And, you know, again, it always comes back to it has to be interesting. But if you can show people like, uh, hey, this guy, you know, has been hitting the ball really hard or, or you know, has great movement on his curveball. You know, those are baseball-y things. And it sometimes takes some effort to know where to find those things or how to get to them. Because I think a lot of the stuff we show it would work on a regular broadcast. You just got to get there first. And so I sort of like act as my own researcher for most of it. Right. And what I try to do is just basically uh, have like two or three interesting things to say about each guy. 
because anybody can say, hey, Mike Trout's pretty good, right? But maybe yeah. I'll be able to say, okay, here's like three interesting things about him or or the backup infielder or whatever. So uh, it's a lot of work. It's gotten a little easier as I've sort of gotten the process down and gotten a little more comfortable. And what I found recently is, you know, obviously I want to be prepared, certainly, um, but it's not as hard as I thought it would be to quickly look up stuff while we're doing the game mm. on Savant, baseball Savant or fan graphs or whatever. Uh, especially if I know like Eddie's about to say something that'll take him 35 seconds. Well, I can pretty quickly look up a number. So that's actually helped a lot as well. Nice. How do you think about the information differently? Because when you're preparing for TV and presenting on TV, it's very different than writing, he said, a 1200 word article or something. How do you think about presentation and gathering the info and presenting it differently on the two mediums? Uh, I, I explain then the basis of the stat a little less probably on TV. Like let's say I'm saying that a guy has a 125 weighted runs created plus, right? I don't really want to explain what weighted runs created plus is. So right. I'll probably just say, Hey, this guy, even though he's hitting 210, you might think he's bad, but he's really 25% above average as a hitter. And if anybody wants to go fact check me, like feel free to do that. And they'll, they'll mm-hmm. see that like, okay, this is at least rooted in fact, I probably won't even say WRC plus is like a terrible right. thing to say on television, but you could say, <laughs> Hey, you know, Aaron Hicks was a great example for the Yankees this year. It's like, Hey, this guy's hitting 210, uh, but he's got like the fourth best walk rate in baseball and league average power. So yeah, 210, but he's actually like 25% above average as a hitter. And that's why the Yankees keep playing, you know, like that, mm-hmm. I think explains the story without getting into the entire history of what a weighted run created even is. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so those conversations you have with Eduardo Perez, I, I think they're good. Um, as you said, he has all the experience and you know, might be a manager soon. What are keys to making those conversations work between, again, the stereotypes, the numbers nerd and the player? Well, Eduardo, I mean, it starts with him because he is just like the greatest teammate, you know, you could imagine. Yeah. Like the first thing we did together was the All-Star game. No, sorry, the home run derby at the All-Star game in 2018 Mm -hmm. and those those are fun but they're really weird to do because it's like it's just guys hitting bombs you know there's not a ton of analysis aren't as relevant there right and i did not know eduardo or jason really other than by reputation and i I have no idea if they knew me and like eduardo could not have been friendlier and more you know uh, accommodating like here's this guy who doesn't you know do tv but you couldn't have been friendlier you know he's obviously he, he doesn't have to be like a nerd on the sense that i'm a nerd but you know, really what you want from a former player is not to just go up there and dump on the numbers all the time. And he does it like he's interested in it. I know there are times during the season now where he was doing other games that I wasn't even involved in. And he'd bring me up and be like, oh, hey, uh, we're doing a Mets game. And it looks to me like Edwin Diaz, uh, his release point has really dropped. And I think that's affecting his pitches. Like that's something I would not see with my eyes, but a former ball player would definitely see. He's like, is, yeah. is that true? And so I looked it up and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like really true. Here's like a list of numbers and a leaderboard and you can talk about it and they can throw up this number on the on the screen. And that'll really help your story. You know, like that kind mm-hmm. of thing where it's like his eye test plus the numbers working perfectly together. I think that's when it works the best. Yeah, that curiosity is so important from from every perspective. How has in general, how has calling games been different than maybe you expected? I think people underestimate how hard it is to uh, do because the games are like three and a half hours, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's that's a lot of time to be up there and, and talk, like, especially for someone like myself, who's not really a trained broadcaster, you know, Jason does it every night. Like I do yeah. it once and I want to go home and sleep for a week. I, I don't know how he does it, honestly. Um, but it's that and it's it's being prepared also for, you know, what happens if the game isn't any good. You know, sometimes you, yeah. you have a blowout and it's like, how do we keep this interesting, you know, and what I think works the best about our games is not really even the stats. It's just the fact that Jason and Eduardo and I 
like baseball uh, mm-hmm. and we like each other, you know, like if, if people come away from our games thinking, wow, that was fun because I watched three guys who like baseball and really enjoy talking to each other. Maybe I learned something new I didn't know or didn't get angry about some garbage cliche that doesn't mean anything. Then I, I think that's a good game. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball is a weird from a broadcasting standpoint, I think having done some at a very low level, it's a weird combination of lots of dead time, but you still have to be concise and you have three plus hours. That, that's right. a weird thing to all put together. Uh, what was it like this year? Colin, so you were in Bristol, so you weren't with Eduardo and Jason, if I'm not mistaken, most of the time. What, what was that like? How did that change things? Yeah, Jason was at his home in Chicago and Eduardo was at his home in Miami. And I, you know, since I didn't do it that often, they didn't set me up with a home studio. So I, sure. I drove up from New York to Bristol. It was, it was interesting because the setups were so different. So we did two regular season games. And then uh, I went back up for the wild card round. And so Eduardo wasn't with us for that. That was me and Jason and Kyle Peterson. And so the first two games, I was uh, by myself in these like giant fancy studios, like studios that are three times the size of my entire apartment, you know? And so it's like, okay, this is kind of cool. Like it's big and modern and fancy. And then of course, you know, they did seven of the eight wild card series. So they had a lot of people there. And what I ended up with there was uh, a voiceover booth. And at first they said that to me and I'm like, wait, is that like a phone booth? Like, am I going to have to stand up for like 20 straight hours? And it, it was, and it's like a smallish room with mm-hmm. a bunch of monitors. And I actually kind of liked that a little better. Uh, Cause it's, you know, you close the door, there's no one there in you. You put your feet up on the desk. Cause like you're yep. barely on camera, uh, have a bunch of TVs in front of you, have my laptop next to me. So that was fine. They're really the only, uh, obviously aside from just missing, hanging out with them and going out to get dinner, you know, after the game, which I always look forward to, yep. uh, it just took me a minute to get used to the the Zoom aspect of it. Like if you watched games this year, there were definitely broadcasters who were sort of stepping on their colleagues because they start to talk at the same time because you're not next to each other, right? And it, it's kind of hard to get that timing down. So that was definitely an issue for me the first time because like, you know, you have a Zoom, but is the Zoom on a delay or is it on a, is the screen in an area where you're ever actually going to look at, you know? So that that was the hardest part for me. But after a while, I think I think we got that down. Like you should have seen Jason on our Zooms where he'd be like, you know, sometimes he'd point or he'd hold up a sign that would say Eduardo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you figure it out over time. It's a it's weird mechanics, but you do figure it out. I want to talk career path and advice a little bit. First of all, I believe you're from New Jersey. How did you grow up as a Dodgers fan? What's the story there? Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s. The Yankees were unwatchably terrible in the 80s. It was not a <laughs> yes. good time to be a Yankee fan. Um, even though my grandfather was a Yankee fan and took me to a bunch of games, I, I don't know how I didn't become a Mets fan because they were good. And my mm-hmm. dad is a Mets fan. But what happened with the Dodgers was um, when I was six and then again, when I was seven, I played T-ball and ended up just randomly on the Dodgers, just like a little blue T-shirt that said Dodgers. It could have easily said Cubs or Braves or whatever. And when I was seven years old, uh, about a month after my seventh birthday, actually, that was when. Uh, the Dodgers won the World Series and Kirk Gibson hit the home run and everything. And I'm sure that at seven, I was not staying up to see that home run. But I remember uh, being like, oh, I'm on the Dodgers. And then I remember the next year where they weren't actually very good. But I do remember coming home from school and spreading the sports page out and looking to see where they, oh, they got from fourth place to third place. And um, it kind of went from there. And then like a couple of years later, Mike Piazza came up and he was like my favorite player of all time because he's from the East coast. His name's Mike. And he was just super cool. <laughs> like he was the coolest man alive. Maybe Ken Griffey Jr. But in like 1994 to me. Yeah. So sort of just went from there. All right. So then you, your long winding path basically from Dodgers blogger to 
MLB.com writer, analyst. We could probably spend a whole pod just walking through career steps. So what was kind of the general career path that you took to get from that early stages to where you are now? Uh, yeah, we could probably talk about that for a whole hour. So I was a Dodgers fan, you know, in the 90s, and then I sort of fell out of it for a couple of years in the late 90s because they traded Piazza, the, they had bad ownership, and also I went to college on in Boston, right? So this is uh, before like streaming TV, and I, I kind of just didn't pay that much attention. I went to a bunch of Red Sox games, whatever. And then um, I got interested again in like 2004, uh, and for the first time in 2005, one of my roommates uh, was from San Diego, got the extra innings package, and that was uh-huh. not specific to his computer as it would be now to the whole house. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can watch Vince Scully every night. That team, by the way, was terrible. Absolutely atrociously <laughs> bad team, but I, but I loved them. Anyway, that got me back into it. You know, I start posting on message boards, whatever, and I had a lot of fun doing that. So I started up a blog that I thought I would do for like a week and I kept doing it and people seemed to keep liking it for some reason. And that got me opportunities, you know, like fantasy baseball magazines and baseball perspectives for a little bit. And then uh, eventually Fangraphs. So that was a big deal. And then I started writing at Fangraphs and they had a content partnership with ESPN. And the editor at ESPN, who was in charge of managing that, is my current editor, Matt Myers. Yeah. And so that's how I got to know him. And like once a week, I would I would submit ESPN articles, um, which I thought were pretty good. Kept writing at Fangraphs. And then uh, Matt left to go to, ESPN, uh, to go to MLB. So I had a different editor. And then in 2015, uh, it was like three weeks after StatCast first launch. I remember I was on vacation with my wife and we were walking on a pier in San Francisco uh, and Matt calls me. He's like, hey, I just realized I really need someone who can write about StatCast. Do you want to come do that for us? (laughs) And I was like, sure. So that year um, I did that freelance and I had a totally unrelated digital production job and then full time in 2016 and kind of gone from there. Nice. So what do you, what advice do you have for aspiring baseball writers? You know, obviously the industry has changed a lot in the last five, 10 years. What do you say to someone who's, Hey, hey, I'm interested in the field. I'd like to write about baseball. What what advice do you give someone like that? I think it's harder now than it was because so many people are interested in it. Um, The first thing I would say is try to have some sort of uh, unique subject matter or, or angle or whatever. Like nobody needs another writer who is like, oh, I'm going to review this trade from yesterday. You know, like everybody does that. So mm-hmm. have some kind of interesting uh, viewpoint or opinion. I know that's much easier said than done, but you know, you have to find a way to stand out. And then if you have that, don't wait for someone to give you permission. You know, you can you can fire up a free blog in about 10 minutes, write it or submit it to like the Fangraphs community blog. Like I, I have seen people get hired by sites or teams based on like three interesting articles. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's that easy all the time, um, but if you're if you're interested and talented, put it somewhere that people can see it. And that's the best way to get yourself noticed. All right. We wrap things up with our playing favorites segment where we rip through some of your favorites. So let's start with your favorite number and why. My favorite number is 29. And um, see, now I'm going to just like keep talking very briefly while I look this up to remember I don't tell the story wrong, but it has nothing to do with baseball. It has it's to not do a, with... John Smoltz was 29, I think. That's the first no. one that came to mind for me. But you know what it is? Not. Okay, I was right. You know what it is? Uh, it's actually, okay, it's two things now that I'm thinking about it. One time, I think going back again to like playing Little League, I was 29 one year and I had a good year. So that's probably it. Uh, yep. But also in the early 90s, I was super into hockey. Uh, you see right now I'm wearing a devil's hat, right? Yep. But um, my my favorite player at the time was Felix Potvin from the Maple ah. Leafs because his I just thought his goalie pads with like the cat helmet and like the claws and everything <laughs> were just like the coolest. Yep. And uh, he wore 29. So I, I've kind of always liked that. 
Uh, I love the random thing like that that we latch on to. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you may have kind of answered this already, but your favorite athlete as a kid? Uh, Mike Piazza. Absolutely. He, he, you know, Mike P from the East Coast, right? Uh, best player on, on the best team. And then, yeah, just like, the cool factor for him with like the handlebar mustache and mm-hmm. you know in 1994 and five and whatever he was just the coolest that was it yeah favorite game that you have been to in person oh that's a tough question um man i'm not sure i have a great answer to that but i i mean i did go to all seven games of the world series in 2016 so i got to mm-hmm. watch the cubs win the world series i'm i'm not sure if as a game itself like as a baseball game that was number one but that is probably one i will remember for the rest of my life Favorite moment that you think you'll remember from this World Series we just finished? I guess most people will say the the Brett Phillips play, but yeah. I think I'm probably going to remember Kevin Cash yanking Blake Snell. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be hard to top for sure. And yet, finally, you have a favorite "How did I get here?" moment. One of those moments where you just kind of take a step yeah. back, you're able to soak in the, just the cool thing, cool yes. place that you're at professionally, etc. I am. Um, if you were to ask my wife, uh, notoriously bad and uh, enjoying the moment, mm-hmm. right? Like, even though I've done a bunch of cool things. Yeah, I guess there's like a two-way tie for first place. That first wild card game we called on ESPN at Wrigley Field, where there's definitely mm-hmm. a moment in like the third inning, because we hadn't done a game before. That was the first game, aside wow. from the home run derby. And I remember being like, man, I hope this works. I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> and then in like the third inning, I was like, okay, this is cool. I think this is going to work. And also I'm at Wrigley Field doing a playoff right. game. Uh, but the other one I would say is the first game, I think first two games, of the 2017 World Series where I was at Dodger Stadium. And, you know, I, I try to, I'm not as much of a fan as I used to be, certainly. Mm-hmm. But also, I was at Dodger Stadium for a World Series game. And I definitely was like, okay, this is cool. This is pretty cool. Yeah, good stories to wrap things up with. So Mike Petriello, MLB.com writer, analyst, host of the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Paul. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to MLB.com's Mike Petriello for joining us on the show. Follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Petriello, P-E-T-R-I-E-L-L-O. And check our show notes and MLB.com for articles we talked about and other stuff Mike has written. I'm joined now by True Media's Director of Engineering, Joe Wagoner. Joe, what did you take away from the conversation with Mike? Well, so first of all, I can't believe that... uh, DJ LeMayu hasn't been shifted in four years, so much so that I had to look it up and make sure. But indeed, it's true. So I looked for right-handed batters with more than 400 uh, ground balls hit over the last four years. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one with zero uh, shifted against them. So there's a couple players with like one or two, but but nobody else with zero. So I'm intrigued and interested to see, uh, you know, Mike dig into that and and why that is. I, I wonder if it has something to do with uh, where he hits the ball in the outfield because I know he's got a, a lot of balls hit the other way. Yeah, he must have a pretty balanced spray chart that uh, teams feel like they can't really do much against. What else? Uh, what else jumped out at you from what we're talking with Mike about? Yeah, so I mean, one thing that uh, you know was impressive was uh, reading his Bellinger piece um, where he really breaks down. Not only that, Bellinger did make a good play, but like what part of the play, the, the jump uh, in particular, did he really excel at? Um, and so I, I think that, that Bellinger piece that you guys mentioned is a good one to go read and, yeah. and be able to watch the the videos of other players um, attempting to catch balls that, that were a similar type of play and, and not really um, 
not coming close in some cases. So I, I thought he did a great job there of of really explaining the the why and how, not just the what um, uh, of that play, which sometimes uh, on broadcasts, especially you see just mm-hmm. the number 45% catch probability and not much else. Yeah, I thought he did a good job of something else he said later in the conversation about just saying things in the way a human being says it. And so, yeah, he took not only did here's the likely to make the catch, but he looked at the why, which is stuff that you can break down with the the new StatCast data we have over the past couple of years. So it, it reminded me a little bit of a, a Deanism, Dean Oliverism, as we've referenced a few times on this pod about he would say, take what a coach or a player says, or in this case, a TV analyst, translate it to numbers, in this case, the StatCast data, and then translate it back into coach player speak, which is he got a good jump and he gets good jumps. And that's why he's good at it. It's all kind of speaking the language, making it easy to understand. And, and I got to figure like, like you as a, an engineer, MLB product manager as well, you know, you're dealing with this a lot in a different sort of way, trying to, trying to walk the line between, you know, I'll just say engineering speak and user speak to make our product good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a really important part and something that, you know, I, I try to do well um, is, you know, be able to translate this is you know what i want to be able to do in the product and then translate that to uh something actionable that we as an engineering team can make happen and, and do that in such a way that it that it fits in with the the larger product goals that we might have yeah and i, I think really intersections between groups of people within an organization between um you know the, the people making these models uh at mlb and the broader public like intersections between these groups are are really important pieces, um, and and Mike definitely does a great job uh, of the intersection that he's at. Yeah, it kind of goes what we, we see, I think, a lot in the industry, just this uh, conduit, translator, whatever you want to call it role. You see baseball teams starting to employ people like that. It's just so important at, at getting people on both sides to be all on the same page. And I know you had some playoff thoughts uh, about the new playoffs. Mike referenced how this might be a one-off year, but we're not really sure. What did you think of the playoffs this year? Yeah, so I I guess my my quick thought is, I think baseball is the most random postseason you know in a, in a normal year uh, with the parity between uh, the teams, and then this season with the expanded playoffs, the the, the randomness was even more, uh, or theoretically was even more in the playoffs. So I right. I guess how do you see that going forward? Do you think that that's a good move um, or a a bad move, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have very mixed feelings on this because kind of the, I don't know, a little bit more old school part of me wants to see, you know, success over 162 games rewarded and give those teams that, you know, earned home field advantage or whatever it might be, give them as much advantage as possible. And then the kind of root for chaos side of me is like, hey, we got eight series going at once and they're playing every day and you've got more drama and more craziness because there's more games and and more stuff's going to happen. And that was a lot of fun, uh, even if it was just for a one-off. So I'm not sure quite how to reconcile those things. And I, I suspect baseball's kind of looking at the same thing. You know, maybe there's something where you expand the playoffs, but you can give those top seeds more of an advantage, whether it's, you know, the, the, the one seed or the higher seed hosts the whole series or has to win fewer games or, or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do think there's some way to both you know, expand the playoffs, which is more games, which is more TV money and, and things, and still have some semblance of an advantage for having won your division or, you know, winning the pennant in the regular season, whatever it is. I feel like there's something that can be done to kind of accommodate both because 
you know, baseball is always looking to, to move forward to get more, more fans involved. We know about TV ratings and all that. So it wouldn't surprise me if they kept the expansion uh, playoff wise. I do think they should try to give those top teams some sort of edge that they've earned over the course of the season. Yeah. I, I think some of the proposals I've seen, um, you know, in, in articles I've read are, are going that direction where it's not going to be 16 teams, maybe that the top seats have a buy. So that, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yep. And the weird thing is in the season of randomness, the, best record in each league those are the two teams that made the world series which so whatever that's worth which again there's probably more randomness at play but that's the way it went so all right thanks joe and thanks again to mike petriello for being this week's guest check out our archives for more baseball guests including mark simon of sports info solutions major league pitcher jared hughes and twins assistant general manager daniel adler while you're there, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, share the show on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports. We might squeeze in one more show before the Christmas holiday, so stay tuned for that as well. On behalf of Joe Wagoner and all of us here at True Media, thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.